Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's November 16th. I'm your host, Christine Hargis, and I am pleased to welcome Financial's host, Gabby LaPera, in the studio for Crossover Week. Hey, Gabby. Hello, everyone. I'm super excited. It is always awesome to be able to do the show with somebody in the studio. Love you to death, Todd Campbell, but it is so nice to have somebody that you can look and gesticulate to and have right here. You just can feel the energy, feel the love. Dude, I totally feel you. I think that you and I are the only hosts that consistently have our analysts like in the cloud somewhere. Yeah. So this is super cool. I'm going to look at you this entire show. Don't get freaked out. I will probably avoid eye contact. Okay. So, anyway, today we are going to be talking about shareholder dilution. And of course, since it is crossover week, we want to put an emphasis on our two respective sectors. So, we'll kind of try to focus it with the lens of both healthcare and financials. So, I figure we'll start off with some basics. Gabby, do you want to kick it off and tell us a little bit about what dilution is, why it matters? Yes, I would love to. So, dilution, much like the chemistry term, means that you are becoming less concentrated. So, shareholder dilution in particular means that um, two two like really important things. Um, one, that the economic power of the the share that you hold is less, and two, your voting rights are less because the share makes up less of a company. So let's let's make let's back up a little bit because I realized I just dumped straight into the conclusions of dilution and didn't actually explain what it was. Um, when companies decide to issue more stock, they don't magically have more assets and so the stock becomes less in price because there are more of them. It's a very Simple equation. Yeah, I, I think of it like a pie. You can you have the same size pie. You can chop it up into however many pieces, but you still have the same pie at the end of the day. Exactly. Uh, I think that's why there's such a negative perception of shareholder dilution is because if you are holding on to this piece of pie that you paid good money for, you don't want to see it suddenly get smaller. But there are good reasons why companies will dilute. Some of the really common ones are to pay for an acquisition, for example. Um, sometimes it's just straight to raise money. Maybe you need that to service your debt, something like that. Um, another really common reason why shares become diluted is the conversion of stock options granted to employees or board members. So a bunch of companies will give their executives or just you know their employees in general the option to convert uh, these securities into common shares. And when they actually do exercise that option, it dilutes the current shareholder base. Um, so, yeah, this can be a good thing, it can be a bad thing. It's largely a bad thing. I think most, <laughs> most people are not pleased when they hear that they're being diluted. But it actually could be a good thing, which is kind of an interesting case. So, say, for example, your company is overvalued and you know it, which if you're, you know, if, hopefully you bought in when it was undervalued and now you're sitting on an overvalued company, but regardless. So, say the company is overvalued and the company goes to pay for an acquisition using stock, that's smarter than them doing that using cash, because the shares are worth more than what the the cash value is. And so, at that point, you could be very happy to see that, because this slice of pie that you have just accumulated is suddenly a bigger pie. It's cut up more ways, but the pie's bigger. So, that's a good thing. But, in general, it's not the best. Um, many times, you can perceive it as a transfer of wealth from the retail investor to the insiders when you have those the exercise of stock options, and 
it, you also have the option of it being pretty neutral, which is kind of the same as the case where it's good, except that that would be if you're using it in an acquisition where you're paying a fair price and the company that you own is also fairly valued. So that's just kind of net net. Your slice of the pie is smaller, but the pie is proportionately bigger, and so it's pretty neutral. So, I would love a real life example if you have one. I can do that, and I'm probably <laughs> going to pick a healthcare stock if that's all right with you. <laughs> that's totally fine. So, one recent secondary offering that was announced in the healthcare world was that of Puma Biotechnology. On October 18th, after the closing bell, they announced that they wanted to raise 150 million and potentially another 22 and a half million on top of that because of some technicalities with the people who underwrote the the shares, they could technically have the option to buy them within 30 days if they want. So this was an interesting uh, situation because Puma right now has this one drug. It's called Neurotinib, and it's a, a breast cancer drug. If you're listening to the show yesterday, by the way, it is actually an HER2 positive breast cancer drug, which is a target that I was just talking about with Vince on the <laughs> Consumer Goods show yesterday. Anywho, so you have this drug, and it is under FDA review right now, and the, the decision should come out in about mid 2017. As you likely so, know, if you so, get hold on, so that means that they're still testing the drug. That means that the trials have either largely wrapped up or they have enough that they could submit it to the FDA with what they have right now. So the FDA is sitting on the information, they have the application, and they have a certain amount of time to actually accept or deny the drug the right to be marketed. So an approval, as you likely know, would send shares higher of this company. And if you think about how the mechanics of shareholder dilution work and secondary offerings, you want to wait until you have that higher share price before you go out and, and send more shares, because you make more money. But they don't really have enough time left with the cash that they have to wait for an actual approval. So they had to do this now. And I, I think it's probably a smart move. You know, they can hit the ground running, get all ready for the launch, but shares did sink 18% even before the price of this new secondary offering was announced. And since the this announcement came out, the shares have kind of just been slipping and slipping even more. But um, ultimately the shareholders were diluted about 15% and the company got the money that they need. So I think that's a, a fairly typical way that you'll see secondary offerings and shareholder dilution in the biotech world. You, know, you have these companies that aren't making money with the drugs yet because they're not approved yet. And so they need to make money somehow. Turning to the financials world though, I feel like it gets a lot hairier. It can. It can, definitely. Like you have a ton of regular types of companies in the financials world, like banks and insurance companies and stuff like that that do this what I like to call the normal way, the way that Christine just described. But then there's other companies, and we've discussed these companies before. Um, and a great example of them is a, is a BDC, which is a business development company. Um, when you think about a BDC, um, kind of think of them as a venture capitalist that you can buy shares of. So instead of you personally going out and saying like, I would like to invest in your pizza delivery company. Um, you would invest in the BDC, who would then give money to the pizza delivery company. Um, obviously, you can't buy shares of private equity firms because they're private equity firms. Um, and BDCs are really interesting because they're closed-ended funds um, or closed-end funds, which means that they can't accept new investments all the time. 
Okay. What do you mean by that? So, okay. Imagine you have a mutual fund and you give the mutual fund a thousand of your dollars. You can go to the mutual fund anytime and say, I want my thousand dollars back or I want to give you an extra thousand dollars. And the mutual fund says, great, totally fine. Here's your thousand dollars back. Um, you can't do that with BDCs. The only way to get your money in and out of the BDC is actually just to buy or sell the shares that are on the exchange. Um, and that's because BDCs typically invest in the debt or equity of really small private companies back to this like single pizza store in Washington, D.C. or a jewelry store in Idaho or a mattress company. I don't know why BDCs love mattress companies. <laughs> um, so the problem with, with that is that if you have the debt of a very small company, it's really difficult to buy or sell those companies or to buy or sell the debt on those companies because not a lot of people want it. So if an investor were able just to come up to the BDC and say, hey, I want my $1,000 back, or in this case, maybe $100,000 back, the BDC might not have the cash on hand to give it back to them, which is why they issue shares instead. So that's why BDCs have shares to begin with, <laughs> um, as opposed to like a mutual fund. Um, so then what sorts of issues do you run into if they decide that they want to issue even more shares? So this is really interesting, and this gets into how um, the value of BDCs are calculated. Um, if you've invested in a mutual fund or have heard of mutual funds, you might have heard the term net asset value, which is super easy to calculate for mutual funds because it's just the value of all the assets minus the liabilities that are on the balance sheet. Now the problem with BDCs is that they get to decide how valuable their assets are, um, and there are. And that, that's because there are these tiny pizza mattress, et cetera, companies, exactly. right? Like you can't just go look online to say, hey, how much is this mattress shop worth? Exactly. Like they don't issue 10 Qs, right? They don't, they don't have any of that. And unless you happen to be wherever that mattress company is and you can like walk in and look at it and maybe talk to someone there, it's really hard for investors to do their due diligence on what the BDCs actually own. So you have to just trust them. Um, they, there are accounting principles that they follow for this, but I like to call it emotional accounting because it's really just how the BDC feels about this business. It's not, I mean, like there are, there is math involved, but it's, mm, it's, a, it's a little bit more. I wish listeners could see me. My hands are making vague motions in the air. Her face looks highly skeptical. I'm so skeptical. Um, so the point is that it's a little bit shady how you determine net asset right. value, but that's a really important metric for BDCs. Absolutely. So um, the easiest way to explain BDCs is in contrast to mutual funds, which is why I keep bringing them up. If you want to buy into a mutual fund, you know exactly how much each like bit of the mutual fund is because the net asset value is calculated once a day at the end of the day, which is why you only come in and out of mutual funds once a day. Um, but BDCs, their share price is not. 100% dependent on their net asset value. right? So you can buy BDCs for at a discount or at a premium, and typically people want to buy at a discount. right? right. Like, and, and that way it's kind of like a stock. Exactly. It's exactly like a stock. But um, and then people do take the net asset value into account when buying shares, but it's an interesting thing, because like, where is the point where you say, you're trading at too much of a discount to your actual net va asset value, and it makes me really nervous. Right. At that point, is the market missing something, or is the company misleading you? I can see how that's kind of a, a shaky gray area. Yeah. So, bringing that back around to this whole shareholder dilution thing, 
where exactly does that come into play here? What are what are the steps involved, the considerations? Okay, so let's throw in one more complicated thing. <laughs> this requires a lot of definitions to <laughs> even get to the, the point here. So bear with us. Thank you, listeners. Um, so BDCs are technically not allowed to issue shares below their net asset value. So if their net asset value is $10, they can't issue shares for $8. Which is kind of fascinating, because if you think about it, go back to the example of Puma Biotechnology. I'm pretty sure they were trading at like $52 the day that, that this was announced, that they were going to offer more shares. They're not going to offer more shares at a higher price than that, because who's going to buy them? You can buy them on the market for 52 And so, you naturally have the ceiling for stocks, where if you're going to issue more shares, it has to be below that current share price. Right. Companies can just decide to do that. BDCs cannot. If they would like to do that, they need to ask their shareholders to let them dilute their stock. Um, and so they have proxies every year. Um, and it, it's interesting because BDCs, like if they're struggling, they can't just automatically lean on share issuance to prop themselves up. Um, but there's this caveat, which is that companies or BDCs frequently ask their shareholders every year pretty routinely like hey can we issue stocks below net asset value like hypothetically in the future if we want to yes. will you let us yes that's a pretty long leash yeah exactly um and you know investors will frequently say yes which i hate <laughs> why is that i mean can you see why? Why the rationale yes? there at all um so no I really can't. I can't justify it. If you if you are one of these people who votes yes, please write in to me at industryfocus@fool.com and let me know why you say yes. I really, really want to know, because I would never say yes in a million years. Even if you totally trusted this BDC, it had been great to you in the past. You thought the net asset value was very trustworthy, all that. Yeah, I would never say oh, yes. That's interesting. Um, Partially because BDCs are really complicated beasts, which is, I think, something that I say every single time that we talk about BDCs. Um, and there's a lot of room for mismanagement to occur in BDCs, not just with share dilution, but like with the way the management occurs, um, like external versus internal management, like fee structures, the, the accounting processes that we talked about earlier. There's just a lot of ways for people to mess up in BDCs. So it's one of those things like, why give you? The temptation when it's not necessary. Right, I can see that. And I, that kind of leads me to the last thing that I wanted to talk about with you today, which is that I know BDCs have a pretty heavy uh, presence of activist investors. And I have to assume that that's because of all these things that you're just saying, where there's this opportunity for mismanagement. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but interestingly, activist investors are actually more attracted to BDCs that cannot issue more shares. Because it's a lot easier for them to take control of them. Meaning, if, people voted no. Yeah, people voted no, right? And typically, if people vote no, that means that there's something wrong with the BDC because it takes a lot for shareholders to vote no for whatever reason. So if they're voting no, it's because there's already something bad going on. And so that's an indication of a lack of trust. Yeah, on the shareholders' part. Um, you know, and there's plenty of companies that never that never actually use this, right? Like the shareholders vote yes, and then the companies like don't do it, and they just ask every year just because because they're fine raising capital in other ways. Um, but if if you think about it, right? If a BDC 
has been told, no, you can't issue any more shares, it becomes a lot more easily easy suddenly for, and they're already in trouble, right? So like no one really wants to buy more shares of them. So like they can't finance themselves. They can't issue more shares below their net asset value. Um, it becomes a lot easier for an activist investor to start buying up shares and be able to take a, a, a stake in that company that allows them to really force the company to do what they want. So what is it that they want them to do at that point? Like how do you how do you take this and turn it around? It totally depends on the activist investor. I think some have better intentions than others. Do you think the the primary goal there is to get that yes vote next time it comes around? No. No, no. Because for most activist investors, they want to retain control of the company. Um, most frequently, and, and that's why they go for the ones that they already voted no. Exactly. That makes sense. Yep. So most frequently, activist investors want to um, change management structures or fee structures um, in order generally to make it more profitable for the shareholders, but every once in a while they want to devalue the company to make it easier for someone else to buy. Interesting. And have they been successful on on the whole? Um, active, yeah, BDCs are prime targets for activist investors, especially because they're so complicated and not a lot of people really 100% understand what's going on with them. Um, but they are really, really high-yielding investment vehicles because um, they, much like REITs, uh, real estate investment trusts, are required to pay out 90% of their taxable income as dividends. And because they have, they're investing in these like high-risk, tiny businesses, like the the margin on their loans or the debt that they have is a lot higher. Um, they have the potential to yield these super high returns. So, given everything that you've told us today about BDCs, is there a single one that you would consider investing in? I hate BDCs. Okay, that's a no. <laughs> As a personal investor, I think they're fascinating as something to study. But no, I would never I would never buy a BDC and I know that makes me biased. I'm acknowledging my bias. <laughs> I mean, I think that's okay. Like look for example at Warren Buffett. He says he doesn't want to invest in stocks that he doesn't understand. And so that kind of eliminates a lot. Like for example, he's not going to invest in a biotech. Which I like to think that you can understand biotech even without a science background. That's what we're here for on Industry Focus Healthcare. But he's ruling out an entire chunk of companies just because he doesn't think it's worthwhile to even bother like trying to pick out the gold in a pile of dirt. That's not a real phrase, but I'm making it one. <laughs> I feel like that's the same way with BDCs. Like maybe there is a gem out there, but in general, it's it's a category that we're not too big fans of. Yeah. Do you like? Do you like them? Not from what I've heard. No, <laughs> the the shadiness. I, I would be intimidated to even try to pick apart the the real net asset value. I'm just waiting for like a BDC PR specialist to reach out to me today and be like, "Well, let us change your mind about BDCs. We'd really love to give you an interview." And I'll probably ignore it or crotchly say, which is not a word, by the way, cantankerously, I suppose, say no, <laughs> but nicer because it's never polite to be mean. Well, with that nice lesson of the day, <laughs> I think I'm going to close off the show. Thank you, Gabby, so much for being here and explaining to us this very complex topic of BDCs and offering some thoughts about shareholder dilution. Uh, before we totally sign off, I want to tell everybody that there is a race going on this Sunday in Alexandria, Virginia. So, if you live somewhere in the neighborhood of Full HQ, you should absolutely consider signing up. It's called the Run for Shelter, and it benefits the Carpenter Shelter, which is a great local organization that the Motley Fool works with to fight homelessness. 
uh, Chris Hill and Allison Southwick, some names that you'll recognize if you listen to our whole suite of podcasts, will be there. I'll be there. Many, many other fools will be there. And we hope to see some of you there. Don't hesitate to come up and say hi if you do run the race. There's a 5K, 10K, and a one mile. I won't be there. Gabby unfortunately missed the signups <laughs> because of her lovely trip to Asia that I'm sure you guys have heard plenty about. But she'll be there in spirit. Anywho, you can check out all of our past episodes of Industry Focus and all of the Motley Fools podcasts at our podcast center, which is at podcast.fool.com. While you're there, you can also check out our flagship newsletter service, which is called Motley Fool Stock Advisor. And this Friday, the new issue of Stock Advisor actually comes out, and they're going to have two new stock recommendations from David and Tom Gardner, which they are the co-founders of our company and some really phenomenal stock pickers. You can check out the recommendations by going to the Podcast Center, scroll all the way to the bottom, and again, that is podcast.fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't belt buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. For Gabby LaPera, thank you very much for being here. I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks for listening, guys, and Fool on! Fool on!